Hey everyone, I'm Coach Al Lyman. And I'm Dr. Kurt Strecker. And we are the experts behind Pursuit Athletic Performance, one of the nation's cutting-edge sports training companies with an outstanding reputation for getting athletes just like you stronger, more powerful, and faster, all while keeping you uninjured and in the game year after year. Our weekly podcast will share honest, effective training tips and information. From the nuances of triathlon to the rigors of ultra running, as well as the latest in sports medicine and nutrition. Our goal is to explode the training myths and untruths marketed to athletes and to teach you how to truly unleash your ultimate potential. Be sure to subscribe for free updates of our proven strategies at PursuitAthleticPerformance.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this new edition of the Pursuit Athletic Performance Podcast. I am Coach Al Lyman. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really tickled because I've got a special guest on the podcast today. This is a podcast I've really been looking forward to ever since I heard this very unique and highly acclaimed uh, individual speak at the uh, Medicine and Science in Ultra Endurance Sports Conference a month ago or so in Squaw Valley. I'd like to welcome Dr. Tamara Hugh to the podcast. Tammy, how are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks for letting me chat. Oh, it's it's a real treat to have you on the podcast for for a number of reasons. Um, I want I want to uh, I want you to to of course tell our audience a little bit about yourself but before you do that I'd like to I'd like to read something which I think is pretty cool um, and this will kind of give our audience and listeners today um, a little bit of a background as to who you are uh, in 2013 you were recognized um, as a professor in the School of Health Sciences at Oakland University in Michigan and I quote within the past three years as Oakland University tenure-track faculty, Dr. Tamara Hugh has published 21 scientific papers in such peer-reviewed journals as the Journal of Neuroscience, Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise, and Sports Medicine. Dr. Hugh's scholarly work is performed in collaboration with researchers from around the world, with a total of 50 total peer-reviewed publications in her young research career, Dr. Hugh has earned a reputation as a world leader in the topics of exercise-associated hyponatremia, fluid balance disorders in endurance athletes, and the endocrine regulation of fluid balance during exercise. Accordingly, she's represented at OU as an invited speaker at sports and endocrinology medical conferences in China and Monaco, in addition to many cities throughout the U.S. and Canada. That's impressive. Not really. I'm just just a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) I like to read. Yeah, I love it. So again, as as background for our listeners, I had a chance to hear you speak when I was attending the conference in the week prior to the Western States 100, and you presented that day on exercise-associated hyponatremia, which... Uh, is, of course, a really important topic for endurance athletes everywhere. And uh, we'll talk about some of that today. But before we go on, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and 
and how you arrived actually to be presenting at that conference because you've actually as well as your background in exercise science, you've also got a doctor of podiatric medicine. So you've been you've been around a little bit and done a few different things. How did you get to this point in time doing what you're doing? You know, it's funny how things work because I never thought that I would be uh, in teacher teaching or being in a researcher. I was always a you know I've been running since I was a teenager. I was not very good, but I really really enjoyed it, and I still. That's the only constant I've had in my life. So I went to uh, UCLA, and then I went to podiatry school, and then I ended up in Houston doing a residency. And because I ran so much, I ended up working in the medical tent of the Houston Marathon. And, you know, I was caring for people's feet, and most of the patients that I saw were runners because I attracted that. And you know, trying to keep everybody running on their feet. That was that was fun. Um, but, you know, Houston was hot, and so everyone used to always tell us to drink as much as we could. Uh, we needed to prevent against, like, dehydration. You know, I had a coach, and he had told me to put a pitcher of water next to my bed and, you know, three days before the marathon, try to, like, drink the whole pitcher uh, to get used to drinking that much water. So that was the advice that we got. And so one year was particularly hot. And we had all these people, you know, come into the medical tent. And uh, we thought they were all dehydrated and we were giving them fluids. And then um, four people had seizures. And they had to be transported to the hospital. They ended up in um, intensive care in comas for, you know, about a week. And the final diagnosis was hyponatremia. And I didn't know anything about that. And the runners were like my family. And so I needed to protect my family. So I, I started reading up on hyponatremia. And at that time, you know, Gatorade was really, really big. And it's like, oh, you need to replace sodium um, because you need to prevent hyponatremia. And then there, there was this guy in Africa. His name was Tim Nose. And, you know, he came out with this paper and said, no, you know, they're drinking too much. and They don't need more salt. They're drinking too much. And so we started to, uh, you know, survey the runners. How much did you drink? You know, did you take NSAIDs? All the things that they were thought that were um, supposed to contribute to hyponatremia. And lo and behold, it found out people in the Houston Marathon, I mean, they were drinking like 80 to 100 cups of fluid during the marathon because, you know, we were told to. And so my data showed that runners were drinking too much and that's what caused it and, and and that kind of at the time caused a big fear uh that no they need more salt no it's too much water so i actually ended up leaving practice and moving to south africa to study hyponatremia and i look you know so my phd was like icing on the cake i i did a lot of studies and really at this point we we understand that most not all, but most hyponatremia is when athletes try to drink above um, their what we call above the dictates of thirst. They're over drinking uh, because they're told to. They gain weight. Um, so we made recommendations to drink according to thirst, and that nobody needed salt capsules. But that data, and including studies on my own, were taken from races that were. Ironman triathlons in cooler weather and below. 
So when we made that that statement that nobody needs salt tablets, it was the ultra-running community that said, no, 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 we're different. You know, we need salt. So I'm like, fine, I'm going to come to your races, and I'm going to do some studies. And that's how I ended up at Western States. Um, wow. You know, I was, I was trying to prove that nobody needed salt. And lo and behold, like, you know, three years later, there are people at Western States who need salt. So I've almost come full circle, whereas, you know, most of the time people drink too much and they can die um, because their brain swells and their lungs swells, and that's how people die from hypernatremia. It's a, it's a bad thing. But in the Western states where it's so long and it can get so hot, some people need sodium. So that's how I got there. That's how I did a lot of work uh, at Western States. I love ultra runners, but it's become so much more complex than I ever believed it to be. Right. You know, it is uh, It is really cool that, you know, um, Western States is one of those races, uh, in part, of course, to the people that are involved like you, but it's one of those races where there is some really cool research being uh, being done and, you know, it's by nature the research is so hard to do because of so so many variables. Right. Uh, and and I'm always impressed with people like you that are willing to go through that uh, arduous process of of taking out as many of those variables as you can and trying to make that research happen. You know, before we go on though, let's back up for a moment and if you would, in in sort of layman's terms, describe for our listener just what hyponatremia is because I think a lot of people certainly out there, whether it's from the 5K to the marathon or the ultramarathon, hear the word hyponatremia that may not really understand exactly what it is. That, that's a good point. Uh, and it's really important. So hyponatremia means low sodium. So all of us sitting here, we, our bodies regulate blood, the level of sodium within our blood very tightly. So the normal range for human and most animals, our blood sodium should be between 135 and 145. And that's tight if you really think about it. And your body really controls that. Because if your sodium in your blood goes too low, what happens is this forces water to move inside of cells. And this makes the cells swell. So cell swelling, particularly if you drink too much, becomes a problem in two places in your body. One is the lungs and one is the brain. So obviously if the brain fills up with fluid, your skull actually acts as a barrier. So it just can't swell forever like your hands can. So if your brain swells like more than 4 or 5%, the brain swelling will actually push your brain stem out of your head, and that's how people die. So also what happens, too, if you drink too much, your sodium gets too low, there's water that actually fills your lungs, and you get pulmonary edema. And uh, so those are the two things pulmonary edema, water in the lungs, and water on the brain that makes hyponatremia or low blood sodium lethal. 
And I'm going to go back to uh, Western States. When I first went to Western States, we just pretty much tested as many people as we could at the finish line. And one out of every three runners who finished had hyponatremia. So it was a big problem. Uh, it's getting better now, though. But So it kind of alludes to the, it, its significance. We don't see it a lot, but when we do, it's explosive and people die. So. Yeah. You know, it's um, it's certainly interesting for me. I mean, uh, having done the Hawaii Ironman a number of times and uh, a race that, you know, somewhat like Western states can be really, really hot. And it certainly is, you know, in my mind, I was always thinking it's going to be almost impossible for me to maintain hydration um, in, a, in an event, especially when you're pushing yourself really, really hard. Right. And I think, you know, for the average athlete, they're always, everybody's thinking, don't become dehydrated, don't become dehydrated, right? I mean, that's the predominant thought process. How do people know? I mean, the, the, the folks that are listening right now are asking, okay, hyponatremia is a risk. I don't want to die from drinking too much. I don't want right. to become really, really ill. How much water should they drink? And and we'll, I know we'll, we'll get into some other things too, but... Um, there is that, you know, that question of dehydration versus hyponatremia. How do folks know how to manage that? I think this, the problem goes back to our definition of dehydration. So the current definition of dehydration is weight loss and or any weight loss, and that's kind of become untrue. So when we look at patients in the hospital who are not exercising, yes, if you're losing weight, you're pretty much losing water. But in when you exercise, things become a lot more complicated. So what we've also found is like muscles, you know, when you carbo-load, you know, you, you try to store all this glycogen in your muscles and your liver, but glycogen too. actually binds water. Yeah. And so when you exercise, you actually, when you burn glycogen, you will liberate water. So this water is going to be like jello. And it's only when you exercise will you actually break the water off. So you almost have an internal store of water. So sometimes when you lose weight, it doesn't mean that you're losing primarily water. And again, too, this goes back to when you when you prepare for a long race, most people carbo-load and they decrease their training. And so when they weigh in before a race, they usually weigh in 1% to 2% higher than their normal weight because they are carrying more glycogen bound to water. Sure. So when you think about, gee, how do I avoid dehydration, one of the first misunderstandings is that any weight loss refers to dehydration and water loss. That's a great point and a great clarification for sure. You know, one of the, and, and on that topic, um, and I, I don't want to cut you off, I want you to keep going, but, um, you know, very often uh, athletes will undergo what they consider to be a sweat test of some kind where they're in some kind of a controlled environment, maybe uh, indoors on a bike trainer for an hour on a treadmill where they'll weigh themselves before they begin and weigh themselves afterward to see how much fluid they may quote-unquote have lost during that 
during that session Correct. as a way to gauge uh, what their sweat loss is. Is that a reliable test to perform? So that also goes back to that point. I say yes because in a lab where most of the studies have done, you're not carbo-loading, you're not racing. So, you know, what you take in, what you're weighing in, and what you lose is probably fairly similar. But that is different than when you actually prepare for a race where you're going to weigh in heavier. But, yes, you're going to always weigh in. People are like, no, I don't weigh that much. And so, uh, (laughs) but that's normal. But going back to, you know, getting on a scale, exercising, and how much weight you lost, that's probably, that is probably fairly, fairly good estimate of how much sweat sweat that you lose but you have to remember that's at a constant pace and that's at a set temperature and the faster or slower that you go or the temperature changes that will alter that prediction so does that make sense it absolutely makes sense yeah you know one of the things that you had you just mentioned was um, and I think this is an important thing to consider obviously uh, is all of the things that happen to us when we begin to exercise. You know, I think reading through some of, of the research myself, and obviously you've performed much of it, there's, there's uh, who knows how many factors that uh, affect uh, hormone activity, secretion, um, what you might refer to as non-osmotic uh, ADP stimuli, right? Correct. Um, vasopressin stimulus, which is one of those uh, hormones that impacts uh, hyponatremia and and that uh, plasma osmolality, and these are somewhat unknown factors, at least for you know for the average athlete that's out there. So, could you spend a minute and talk about that a little bit, at least maybe to help me because I'm a little slow when it comes to this stuff. Uh, yeah. Help me understand a little bit. What are some of the factors that happen when we exercise, and how can we guard against that? perhaps higher risk of hyponatremia. And I'm also going to ask you uh, point blank, how is there any way of knowing uh, if I'm an individual runner, if I'm at risk for hyponatremia above and beyond, obviously, overhydrating or under-consuming salt? But that's, I guess that's a separate question altogether. What about some of these, uh, some of the things that happen when we, when we start to exercise? How does that impact everything that's going on? That's, really important and that's a, an important distinction because when we exercise we generate heat and we start to sweat and we lose water so if we exercise above like 60 70 percent when we start exercising and we start losing water our body naturally wants to retain water so exercise stimulates antidiuretic hormone. And to me, it's a teleological response that, you know, hey, you know, once you start exercising, you want, you need to um, try to, my train of thought, when you exercise, you want to hold on to as much water and salt Mm -hmm. as you can. So if you have antidiuretic hormone, you're not going to pee because all the water and salt is going to be lost through sweat. And that's the difference. So at rest, if you drank a liter per hour, you can pee that all out because that will suppress antidiuretic hormone. But if you drink a liter per hour when you're running, 
antidiuretic hormone is going to be stimulated so that any extra water that you take in while you're exercising, you can't get rid of it by peeing. You can only sweat it out. So it becomes a little bit more dicey. When you're at rest, you know, you don't have the sweat. We only, we can pee out probably about a liter of hour, a liter of water per hour. Um, but when we exercise, if we drink, you know, if we take in too much, we can't pee it out. And I think that's the problem. People are like, well, I drink a lot of beer, I drink a lot of this. Yeah, but you can suppress your AVP or antidiuretic hormone. But when you exercise, you can't. And that's why it builds up. So if you just like, oh, I'm going to tank up, you, know, you do run the risk of retaining too much water. Because we're still investigating whether or not sweat water and sweat sodium is regulated. And, you know, that's, that's a question we, we really don't know about it. So it, then that answered, so if you can't really take in too much while you're exercising because it's harder to pee out. On the other question that you're asking, how would you know that you may be at risk for hyponatremia? Certain drugs. You, um, Timmy, Timmy, yeah. before you jump into that, I want to make sure what you the the things you were just sharing with us, in my opinion as a coach, are really important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you you did a wonderful job of of describing that, but I know our listeners are going, hmm, I'm, I'm going to play that section back one more time. <laughs> that um, uh, and I and I I do want to cover that for uh, you know or talk about that for just a moment because one of the things that naturally comes up in the course of of an Ironman or an ultra distance run um, and I was going to bring up the you know the topic of peeing so I'm glad you brought it up <laughs> you know we yeah. we were going to get there no matter what um, you know is uh, there's a there's a thing I think in in Hawaii you know uh, pee by Javi you know. Uh, you're you're expected to pee at least once before you get to the halfway point on the bike. And folks will always say, you know, I was either peeing really frequently and wondering what was going on or I didn't pee at all and wondering what was going on. So just to make sure it's clear for our listeners, you know, uh, if you would, um, just go over that one more time. It's obviously the, the impact of antidiuretic hormone on uh, whether or not your body is getting rid of that fluid or not, or able to suppress an exercise, and so I guess to to my point there, or at least in terms of a question, perhaps that I, I bet our listeners would love to know, what's an appropriate amount to pee in the course of uh, a five or six or seven or eight hour or twenty four hour race, for that matter? How often yeah. should I be peeing? Well, okay, yeah, so. Again, when you, when we're exercising, our body wants to hold on to as, moder- as much water as possible. And the best way to do that is to stop us from peeing, to hold on to that so that antidiuretic hormone is high so that we don't lose any extra water when we pee. So at rest, well, if we take in extra fluid, we can pee it out. But when we exercise, if we take an extra fluid, we can't pee it out. So moving forward, is pee a good guide of hydration? No. Because even if you have too much water in your body, if antidiuretic hormone is high because you're exercising, you actually can't 
pee it out. So the advice is, well, every hour you should be able to pee and your pee should be clear. That becomes less reliable as an indicator. At rest, it's a good indicator. But during when you're exercising, you will, will not pee, obviously, if you're dehydrated. But during exercise, you will not pee if you're overhydrated because antidiuretic hormones will be higher. And the biggest stimulus to antidiuretic hormone is nausea and vomiting. And that makes sense, too, because when you are nauseous or organ vomit, you know, you lose fluid. So your body, again, naturally wants to hold on to as much fluid as it can. And how many athletes during their long race get nausea or vomiting? A lot. So if you're nauseous, then AVP is even higher. And so that means that you just, you, you hold on to it and you will not pee it out. So I don't recommend using G, um, pee or how much you should pee as, as a guide to your hydration status or how much you should take in. Because pee is, is, is not like the regulated variable. When you pee, it's because something tells you, gee, I need to get rid of water. So if you don't pee during, you know, 24-hour race, that's okay, too. It's not like it's a necessary component of your body to function. It's like pipes. If you overfill the pipes, you open the pipe. If you never overfill and it's never going to overflow, you don't need to open it. That's interesting. Good stuff. I mean, that's a great clarification. I think... um and really helpful, helpful for me and helpful for our listeners, I know. Um, so thank you. Um, all right, now on the, you know, back to that hyponatremia question. Is there is there a simple way for someone to know if they're at risk for hyponatremia? There are certain risk factors. Being a menstruating female seems to increase your ability to retain water. You know, like, you know, we get bloated during our period. You don't know about that. But uh, so certain parts right. of, you know, women have never to. Never been there, no. <laughs> yeah, never been there, don't have to. So during that phase, you know, we have to be a little bit more careful. If you take an anti-inflammatory, like we call them NSAIDs, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in particularly, they increase, they make you hold on to water more. So that increases your risk as well. Okay. And I think really those are the two. And if they're small and you drink, you know, if you're really, really small and you move really slow, but you think you have to drink a lot, that's not an intrinsic risk factor. It's more like, gee, you know, the people are drinking this much. Maybe I need to do that too. They don't. They need far less. So really, um, you know, sometimes female may make fluid retention worse. And, you know, we always say really try not to take the, the pain relievers, because, especially the NSAIDs, because that will also make you retain water. But I, I think like we were talking before, you will never get hyponatremia if you don't drink anything. And we don't want that to happen. But it's 
really when you overcompensate, it doesn't matter kind of what the risk factors are. You just, we need to stop that, oh, I have to drink a certain amount all the time or if my pee's not clear, that that we just really overindulge because um, we don't have any mechanisms to prevent against that. The only mechanism that we have is, you know, vomit. So when I see people vomiting a lot of clear fluid, that's really the only your, the only response that your body has to try to get as much fluid out as possible. Right. So we had um, you and I. That's that's great stuff. Thank you. Um, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before we got on the call, and we were um, talking about our you know our amazing body and its ability to to regulate all of these. Uh, all of these things and all of these feedback mechanisms, which you know, which exist, whether it's acid-base balance, certainly water, it's all homeostasis, if you will. And um, you know, I I will I will say, uh, you know, one thing I've I've talked a lot about over the years as a coach is is this idea that we've got all of these tools available to us and. Of course, all this marketing that's coming at us, and and ultimately the purpose for all of it is to help us dial into and zero into and and sort of get closer and more connected to to our own body and how it feels and how it reacts to stress and and so forth and so on. And and you know you were talking you know earlier very eloquently about about this idea that we usually get into trouble when we you know, when we overconsume or try to outsmart our body or try to head off a problem before it actually has ever, you know, manifested itself on on the race course. Um and that that may certainly be the case when it comes to it comes to hydration. I know certainly for, for novices and anyone that's towing the line, you know, at a long race when they've never done it before and you had the experience being in Houston, right? So it's so hot down there. Right. Everybody's just everybody's just scared to death about becoming dehydrated. And, right. And sometimes the opposite thing occurs. Is there um, sort of a baseline recommendation that you would give? And you don't have to, but is there a baseline recommendation for X amount of fluids of uh, or ounces of water per hour for the average athlete? And listen, that's a I realize that's kind of a silly question because we could be talking about 60 degrees or or 100 degrees Fahrenheit to be very very different, uh, and every individual is different. But is there a sort of a baseline in terms of what the average runner or triathlete would need to take in on a routine basis while so, they're training or racing? Yeah. Um, before I give you that advice. To give you like a baseline estimate really only works if you're a 70 kilogram man going to run at a constant pace on a flat road with no change in ambient temperature. How'd you know that was me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so a guideline only works for that condition. So if you think about it, even you're running a marathon, not even an ultra marathon or an Ironman, even a marathon. Does your pace change? Does the conditions change? Does course, the yeah. heat All change? Time. Do you slow down? Um, do, do you have hills? You know, all those things happen during a race. So that means that your metabolic rate is going to change, which will change your sweating rate, which makes one size fit all impossible. 
So with that, we're going to go back to if you need, you know, some people really, really like numbers. And they're into that. If you need a baseline number, the best thing to do is the, you know, get on the scale on a normal training run, you know, go at a certain, you know, a, a stay pace um, go, and at a temperature that's fairly normal and then see how much sweat sweat that you lose. And then that's probably your estimate. And again, thinking about it, it's that pace, it's that day. And that's you and things are going to change. But, you know, just looking at, I've studied people, we've looked at animals. Thirst is really your real-time guide. It's like minute to minute. It's regulated all the way down to, to rats and mice and worms and sheep and everything. If you drink when you're thirsty, that will protect you against the perils of dehydration, and it will protect you against overhydration. So that's really, you know, people don't want to hear that because they've heard that if you're thirsty, it's too late. If you look at the physiology, it is not too late. You're not over above into dehydration when you start to get thirsty. So to me, I mean, we need to be attentive to our bodies. And if so, if you're thirsty, you drink until you're not thirsty anymore. And again, two people are like, well, you know, what does it feel like to be thirsty? And I'm like, you drink so much all the time, and you, you actually don't have that sensation. But, you know, okay, I'm going to put you in a room. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to turn the heat up, and you're just going to run. And then I bet you, you know what thirst is. So, you know, because we drink, we're, we're taught that we need to drink for so many different reasons of health-wise. We actually don't even... Some people don't even realize what it is. Right. So, but when Good you, stuff, man. That's awesome. yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's uh, really really helpful, and I think that should really help our listeners to at least have a, a, a good understanding of what the research says. You know, on the on the topic of uh, kind of switching gears a little bit in a related way, of course, is is the topic of salt uh, intake, sodium intake, and and if we could. Um, two things I think are important to, to discuss. One is how much sodium or salt an individual athlete who's, who's training and racing um, might need to take in, um, how that relates to how much they might need in training and racing. And, and my point there is, you know, it's, it's not uncommon to read, for example, that you know, the, Af the elite African runners have a very low-sodium diet, and I'm sort of just talking in hypothetically now, but let's say that they have a very, very low-sodium diet. You know, they're uh, eating their, uh, their traditional Kenyan diet, which is very, very low in salt, and, and therefore they don't need to uh, supplement with sodium out on the race course. They might not need to take as much as, for example, perhaps uh, a runner from from the West who's taken in an average of, say, 3,000 milligrams a day, and maybe that runner needs to take in more salt because their daily intake of sodium is higher. I think that's uh, probably a, a common question for a, a lot of runners out there. And then obviously also is, you know, you at the beginning of our talk, you mentioned that you learned that some runners at Western States actually do need to take in salt. I can tell you that 
every triathlete I've worked with in in my 15 years of of coaching, and certainly for the 30 years or so that I've been an endurance athlete, has thought about whether or not there is a need to supplement with sodium in these very, very long races. And um, again, it's a question of, you know, do I take a gram per hour just to head off any potential issue, or is that a bad idea? So um, I know there's a lot there. I hope I didn't throw too much at you. Yeah, I'll try to I'll try to answer it if I miss it. Maybe you can remind me. But so we're also always in sodium balance. So it's interesting. Like, so what what sodium that we take in? generally the sodium that we pee out. So if you take in very, very little sodium, you pee out very little sodium. If you take in a lot of sodium, you actually pee out a lot of sodium. So how I measure someone's daily sodium intake is I collect their pee for 24 hours because that's better than some people writing down what they want. So when we did that actually in Western States runners, what we found is that most runners ingest three times the recommended amount of sodium that we that's required, even for like an average or so even if you're athletic. So and again, one, people on a Western diet take in a lot of sodium. Two, so do runners who needs extra sodium during a race? If you are going to a hot race and you are unacclimatized, you need sodium to take in more sodium. Two, if you are participating in a race in a hot environment, probably over 18 hours, you will likely benefit by having some sodium as well. Aside from that, those are probably the two conditions. It's hot and you're not familiar with it and you're not acclimated. And if it is longer than 18, I think there's been benefits of people taking sodium. So how much do people need? Well, that actually varies too. So I do a lot of studies now with sodium preference. And what I've actually found in the lab is people who had higher sweat sodium, they automatically had a higher craving for salty foods. So whether or not they eat salty foods and they have a saltier sweat or they have a saltier sweat makes them want saltier foods, we don't know. But it seems to be self-correcting. And we all know those people like the potato, they love the potatoes with the salt on it, the, the chips. So, you know, there again, I hate to say there is some regulation there that we can sense when we need it. And even too, at the, I remember uh, Marty Hoffman, he was hyphenate chimic at the end of one of the races that we were testing. And he goes, boy, I really want a salty margarita. And, and you know, that's not something that he typically eats, but, you know, you almost have that sense of what you need. Right. So I'm going to actually, what I look at as a clinician and a scientist is, well, if you take in too much sodium, will it hurt you? And, you know, if you take in the gram of sodium, you know, what are the possible side effects? Probably the, the number one side effects that, that I see anecdotally, especially in the long races, is people swell up. You know, they gain 5 to 10 pounds, but they have a normal sodium, and they feel bloated during the race and for about three days before they finally get rid of all that salt to begin with. So 
that type of swelling and water retention, will it affect your race? I don't know, but that's a side effect. There was a cyclist who was doing, I think, Race Across America, and he was taking in quite a bit of sodium. And so actually what happened is he, that sodium, again, if you take in too much sodium, that draws the water because you want to keep your sodium in your blood regular. He developed pulmonary edema and was hospitalized because he took in so much sodium, which generated all this water, which meant when he went to altitude, it all went into his lungs. So there could be some drawbacks if you take too much, and those are the drawbacks if you overindulge. So it gets back to my point of you you kind of crave it. You know, when you get through a race and, you, and you're, you're 20, you know, I don't know, you're 60 miles in, you're, you look at the aid station, you're like, wow, I just, you know, you you almost gravitate with, with what your body needs. The problem with salt tablet tablets is you you know you lose that craving and again if you take in too much then you actually get thirstier then you'll start to retain some of the water so i don't know if that helps yeah it that definitely helps i mean and you know what's interesting uh tammy and i know you've talked with so many athletes and you yourself are a runner and um you know the challenge on the race course is that you know the mind is just racing in with so many different thoughts and and uh, whether it's, you know, the, the state of mind emotionally or whether or not we're tracking how many calories we're taking in or, of course, there's the whole mental aspects of, you know, judging left brain, right brain. And, you know, there's so much going on there. Right. Can the individual athlete, you know, come back to the point that where they can quiet the mind and really tune into what their body is craving and sensing? And, and naturally, I think the most successful athletes are able to do that very well and probably the less successful uh, don't do it as well correct um we see but, with the most problems with the people in the back the people who are inexperienced because they can't delineate the signs of fatigue and you know from sugar from salt right. or so sure. that's yeah it, that's where inexperience comes into play yeah yeah, you're right. It's you know on that topic, it's very interesting. And in, you know, I I routinely have conversations with athletes where they're describing to me how they feel and they think they bonked. And I think really what happened is they were just exhausted. Perhaps you right. know whether it was CNS fatigue or just overall fatigue. And on the other hand, sometimes they think it's that CNS fatigue and they were bonked. You know, right. literally quote unquote depleted of glycogen and and in a position where their bodies were not able to function uh, and certainly, you know, they're not, not able to think clearly and, uh, and function as normal. And you're absolutely right. It is largely experience that helps us kind of learn to uh, delineate all these various things that are going on. But the better we can do that right. through experience, the more successful we'll be, huh? Right. It's training. And again, too, I think we were talking about before, the problems come in when we try to outsmart our bodies, when we think we know more than than our body does. That's when we run into problems. People who are familiar with their body because they train, they put in the training, they are less likely to outsmart their bodies because they understand their body a little bit more. Not that they don't get into trouble, but they don't get into trouble as much. 
Right. So, but it's hard, you know, when you're feeling so bad at the end of these really long competitive events. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I remember one year I was actually watching an Ironman rather than participating in it. And yeah. I happened to be standing near the aid station, and I couldn't believe how, many, how much food people were eating at the back of the race, you know, yeah. through the aid stations. Yeah. And the special needs, they were pulling their bags, you know, uh, from from the volunteers, and, you know, they were pulling out sandwiches, all kinds of stuff that, to me, wasn't necessarily ideal for them in a right. in an Ironman. It might have been, you know, 20 hours into a, a 100-mile run, but uh, it's, it is interesting that as you move further to the back, uh, people tend to overconsume a little bit. On the topic of um, salt, before we leave that, and, and uh, there's one more topic I want to actually ask you about, too, and I'm, I'm mentioning it only because I have to remind myself, but, but on the topic of salt, um, uh, I know for a long time Hammer Nutrition, as an example, is the company that's marketed their Endurolites. And, and we're, listen, we're marketed. You know, there's all kinds of companies out there that are trying, you know, to to sell product. You know, and we had uh, I don't know if you noticed we had Kevin Kirby on on our podcast yep. a, a couple weeks ago. Oh, no, I he didn't talked know. about a similar kind of thing with running shoes, right? So right. Hammer sells their their product and they sell it as a as a balanced spectrum of electrolytes, and of course there are other products, uh, S-caps being one that's predominantly sodium with potassium. What do we need if, if we determine for one reason or another that supplementing with salt was appropriate for us? Is it important to have a balanced quote-unquote profile as, as the Endurolites are sold to us as, or what, what, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that we need a lot of the extra stuff or the balance um, just from a physiological. I think we we have what we need. Um, we probably have extra. And we actually did a study at Western States where we think that, you know, bone actually contains a lot of minerals. And, you know, in a stressful, such a stressful environment, actually it, we think that like sodium and maybe calcium and magnesium actually can be stored uh, or like um, it can be liberated from, from bone. So, I mean, I don't even know what's in these concoctions. And again, too, you know, the marketing, you don't need any science. And, and again, they're trying to sell you something. But, they're, you know, it takes a while for the science to actually catch up to, you know, what they're promoting. And do you need a balance? Well, I don't see any scientific reason why is that I don't know if that's good or bad but um I don't even I don't think that you need the extra potassium and magnesium and the calcium and you know I think you know you take what you need and you get rid of what you don't and um you know some people hardly eat at all and they they do fine and right. they're not yeah. yeah so good stuff well thank you um you know it's interesting uh, when we talk about the marketing and, and uh, uh, on a little bit different uh, tangent, one of the things that I was I was curious to learn more about when I was out at, at the conference uh, in Squaw Valley was um, protein ingestion during exercise, and and I think you're you're aware that you may be aware that there's a number of products now um, where you know they're heavy marketing to endurance athletes um, for taking in protein. Um, 
and it was interesting. And I was I was doing a little bit of research online, and I I read a little bit about uh, your studies, which you may be doing with some students, where you were assessing pre and post season changes in body comp mm-hmm. in athletes ingesting a protein supplement right. uh, during and after training. And I thought, wow, this is a great topic to bring up with you on our podcast because. Um, we actually, we've done a couple of podcasts on this. You know, I, athletes are asking me all the time, you know, should I be tape, taking MAP or, you know, do I need to supplement with branched chain aminos? And, and obviously there's the whole serotonin tryptophan connection there and the things that are affecting our brain chemistry. And um, for our listeners, I'll actually be talking a little bit more about that moving forward. But I would love your input on this topic, whatever you can share with us on on the topic of of protein intake during during exercise, and, and obviously there's a number of factors uh, and a lot to discuss. But uh, but I'm hoping that maybe you'll be able to help clear up a little bit of the you know the fogginess out there about whether or not you know I'm out I'm out there doing you know maybe I'm an average ultra runner and I'm doing you know, weekly 20 to 25 mile runs, maybe my mileage is 50 to 70 miles a week. Should I be supplementing with branched chains? Um, should I be, you know, will that help me? Does that help stave off fatigue? Will I recover faster? What are your thoughts about some of that? Um, I'm not the expert there. And in fact, I don't really read up on that as much as maybe other people do. So the study that we did with the athletes, you know, they were taking in muscle milk. and But really our preliminary findings are they were taking in the protein that they needed in their diet. And so the supplement didn't seem to add a significant increase in, like, lean mass or performance improvements. So... I know I kind of I kind of caught yeah. you off guard with that question a little bit. Yeah, and I I I, I don't really again too. I, the thing is, I think we're all looking for that edge, and yeah, of course, yeah, everybody is, you know. Yeah, so I don't I actually don't even want to comment because I don't even know. Um, so right. I don't feel educated to comment. <laughs> right. If it makes Absolutely. other than you know, it's like the best thing is what what you can tolerate, because everybody yeah. tolerates something different. Um, and, you know, with the genetic variability, are you a fat burner? Are you a, you know, a carb burner? I mean, you know, yeah. that has to be in the play too. So. Yeah. There's no question. I mean, there are so many variables and uh, something I and we talk about a lot and, you know, to, to say blank, you know, make a blanket statement that you should or shouldn't be uh, is kind of silly or ridiculous. But I figured I would you know, throw the question out to you because I, I did see that you'd done that study and obviously um, you've, uh, you know, by the way, nobody at that Western States conference that I spoke with uh, really answered that question any differently um, than you did. I mean, and even folks that I consider to be, you know, that have a lot of experience in that area have basically said, listen, there's no science to support it right now. Right. Um, and, you know, other than this this idea that as branched chain aminos are depleted during exercise, and there's some evidence, right, to show that they are given up for energy as mm-hmm. glycogen is depleted, um, that there is a 
a shift or an increase in, in serotonin and therefore a change in brain chemistry that affects our ability to either think clearly or to feel energetic or not. I mean, but no one's really, you know, in a position that I've spoken with um, to, to say definitively the science just isn't there, but it is a question that we get a lot and, and certainly, I mean, I know there are people listening to this podcast right now that are supplementing with, you know, MAP and other products and, and you know, the anecdotal uh, research, right. and, you know, evidence is, 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 is out there in space, right? right? Um, as you say, and you pointed out very simply and succinctly, we're all looking for an edge, you know, and the real edge is, is doing the smart, hard work yeah. day in and day out and, um, and going at it in that respect. Well, this has been great. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time uh, to spend with us. You know, you are so uh, busy with so many things, traveling around the world, speaking at conferences, getting ready to, to teach. You're probably teaching right now over the summer. Um, training yourself. Um, I so enjoyed your your presentation out in Squaw Valley, and, and as I mentioned to you, um, you had some great input throughout the entire two days, and, and I was disappointed we didn't get a chance to talk more out there. And I remember, you know, as we were as we were discussing, I walked up to you at the finish line, and you were just buzzing around. It was eleven o'clock at night, and, uh, but it was it was great. I mean, you you did an awesome job. You really inspired me, and I'm and I'm and I'm tickled uh, to death that you were able to join join us today and take time out of your schedule to do so. So so thank you very much. Hey, thanks for uh, the opportunity and and uh, for helping all these people and helping them understand what the right thing to do and, and making us all better. I mean, people like you are priceless because you affect, you know, the health and well-being of, of our lives. So anything that I can help, I don't give a definitive answer, but I give you my opinion uh, at right. any time. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, you know, you know what they say, the more sure people are, are you know, of, of what is the, the right answer, the less you really ought to trust them, I guess, right? Well, I'll tell you this, you know, so now that I I got into research and, and I, I thought that I, at one point, I didn't know anything about hyponatremia, and then I thought I knew everything about hyponatremia, and now, like, 15 years later, I don't know anything about hyponatremia. <laughs> you know, the, I mean, we're all so complex. We bat the percentages, and we do the best we can, but it's pretty much yeah. trial and error. So. That's, that's, that's good stuff. I mean, what a great way to end it. Thanks so much, Tammy. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on this edition of the Pursuit Athletic Performance Podcast. Have a great day. Thanks again to Dr. Tamara Hugh for joining us. Uh, we, all, uh, we hope you all uh, hydrate safely and supplement safely. And, uh, Tammy, have a great day out there in the Midwest, and I hope to see you at some point soon at the next conference or the next race. Looking in forward the interim, to it. Yeah, in the interim, train safe and stay happy. You Thanks, too. everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Pursuit Athletic Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review here on iTunes. Be sure to head over to PursuitAthleticPerformance.com to subscribe for free tips and strategies to help you get strong, get fast, and unleash the amazing athlete in you.